everyone welcome back to two pupils in a pod we are your hosts sakina and fatima and we know it's been a while but we are back with a very exciting episode that we are sure will have been worth your wait definitely if you've been following us on our instagram at the way two pupils in a pod you probably know that we have been up to something with this episode and we are so happy to finally be able to tell you all what it is exactly today's episode the education empire a diverse world as the name suggests is about diversity in the world of education and so to get a deeper understanding of just how diverse education is in different countries fatima and i spoke to students from over 14 countries yes you heard correct we conducted a little survey for a small group of 20 students from australia brazil canada croatia england india north macedonia pakistan saudi arabia singapore the netherlands the united states of america the united arab emirates and zambia and asked them some questions about schooling and education in their country and in today's episode we will be sharing some very interesting findings of that survey while all the responses of the survey are available on the blog on our website www.twopupilsinapod.com some of the respondents were kind enough to agree to also give us verbal responses to some extra questions that we will be sharing with you all throughout today's episode yes so the reason why we chose the topic of diversity in education is because educational experiences of students vary greatly depending on which country they are pursuing their education in but you know apart from intercountry differences there is much diversity even within a country so today we are going to take a closer look at a few aspects of schooling and education and how they differ that's right every nation in the world is equipped with some form of education system but each country has its own unique model method and approach yes for example the total number of school days in a year may be anything from 180 days in most countries to over 260 days in few others similarly the average number of hours that students spend in school in a day also varies from 4 hours to 10 hours there are some countries that place a high value on rigorous education in elementary school while first world countries value play for the younger years and then there are countries that struggle with poverty and have limited access to education and a lower literacy rate among their citizens now the value placed on education the amount of time devoted to it and the distribution of education within a country play a role in international differences in different education systems but among the major major factors that affect education systems are the resources and money that are utilized to support these systems in different nations and on this basis is the classification of schools into the two main broad types public schools and private schools so how do public schools differ from private schools let's hear it from one of the respondents hi there My name is Ali Asghar. I'm from India. I've done my schooling in DP Sharjah UAE and I'll attempt to give a not so boring assessment of the differences between the quality of teaching and education 
in private and public schools. Let's start off by understanding what separates them into their categories. A private school is not supported financially by the government and so parents have to pay for their child to access education there. Whereas a public school is maintained at the expense of the public, the taxpayer, and so basically is handled by the government. But public schools aren't far behind. Free or minimal fees is a relief for many families, especially for those who are unable to afford basic education, hence being more accessible than private schools. Students spend more time studying core subjects, which probably leads to a better grasp of concepts such as in maths, science, etc. And since public schools are bigger, they can quite often hold major events if funds are provided by the government. But in a country like the UAE, where the government positively influences both private and public sectors and is perpetually improving its education system, even public schools are some of the best in the region. Due to its efforts, the disparities between private and public schools have been reduced by a significant margin, with core emphasis now being focused on adapting to new approaches to learning and newly designed infrastructure, which renders these two types of schools to be easily accessible and beneficial for all students. Thank you. That perfectly summed up all the differences. Thank you so much for such a detailed answer, Ali Asghar. And as he rightly said, Public schools are funded by the government of the country and follow regulations set forth by it. But the most important feature is that public schools are universal, which means they are for everyone. On the other hand, private schools are not free and hence they charge a fee for tuition. They are mostly accredited and usually supported by different organizations or even institutions. Now, except for a few countries, all others have made education compulsory for all children in their country. And so, more than 90% of the countries in the world have more than 50% schools each that are public schools. This shows that a large percentage of the world student population is educated in public schools. Right. And you know, even within the sphere of public and private schools, there are so many different formats of schools, such as um, charter schools, magnet schools, boarding schools, special education schools, Montessori schools, and of course, homeschooling. But there are other differences in the formats of schools in some countries. Let's hear it from two of our respondents. My name is Rakan Al-Nsur. I'm from Jordan, living in Saudi Arabia. The schools here, most of them, are uh, cut into sections. One for the boys, one for the girls. Even though it's maybe uh, maybe the same school like uh, uh, like well, the one I've I've been in. Most of them, I know only like two to three schools in the whole country that are mixed. Uh, there are some schools, such as Catholic schools, they only allow Catholics. Uh, for example, we have some that uh, only allow Muslims. Uh, mostly Muslim international schools which teach uh, the English curriculum but with the uh, Muslims inside and there are prayer times for example in the middle in the, at noon there's the Dhuhr prayer everyone has to pray it and there are uh, Quran classes and uh, yeah teaching history is mandatory like uh, Saudi history how they took, uh, took over the land and united the lands here they also talk about uh, sea trade sometimes, and even in the history they teach about uh, uh, Prophet Muhammad and his message and everything. 
and how the nations uh, became one and everything. All the history of the Islamic nation. Thank you so much, Rakan. Those are some very interesting differences that you spoke about. The thing about co-ed and non-co-ed schools is that in the Western world, single-sex education is primarily associated with the private sector, while the public sector is overwhelmingly co-ed. While on the other hand, in Muslim countries, public schools are usually single-sex, while many private schools may be co-ed. But another reason why all girls' schools or universities exist is to offer women a chance of education at a time when they were denied access to mainstream educational institutions. And yes, other categories of schools are those which only admit students of the same faith, such as Christianity or Islam, etc. Such schools are also prevalent in many countries like India. And obviously, religious studies and practices such as church or prayers are part of the daily school day. Yeah, but it's also interesting to note that history was a compulsory subject for all students in Saudi Arabia, which is not the case in a lot of schools and countries where it's usually an optional subject or it's not taught at all. True, but besides these differences and the usual public-private schools, there's a very interesting setup of how schools are run in one of the countries. So let's go right ahead and hear about it. Hi everyone. So my name is Mariam and I go to school in Lusaka, Zambia. So my school is run by the parents and it, it, it runs itself in a way. So to tell you the story, I'll start off with like a short history, fun kind of story. So basically, at the time of British colonization, Zambia had and a lot of other African countries had were disciplined by missionaries and a lot of the missionaries had children so what the british did was they built schools in a lot of these african countries to to send the missionaries children to school and because it was at the time of british colonization they were of course teaching british syllabi and because zambia is a place with a lot of international people people felt um uh, comfortable sending their children to a school that teaches the British curriculum because even if they continue to travel because of business, um, British syllabi and curriculum is taught all over the world. So it's easy, uh, it's a, it allows for an easy and smooth transition for their children. So uh, a, a couple of years ago, all these schools started teaching IB um, curriculum, IB1, IB2 uh, for the higher grades. And so even in Zambia, a group of parents, a group of about 12 parents, decided that they wanted to continue sending their children to school, that uh, a school that taught the British curriculum. So they decided to take matters into their own hands and actually start a school. Um, so my school start, uh, was started 25 years ago by a group of 12 parents. So now... The school is still run by parents. It's the board of directors are parents. And what this does is it gives a completely unique and different perspective compared to a regular school. For example, a government school, the government they do the government syllabi, which of course we don't do. We, we do CIE, British curriculum. But not only that, the decisions that are made are this, like the ones that the government makes, for example, and are not always in favor of the children, for example. 
and schools that are also privately run the difference with that is it's not it's usually just one owner making the decisions according to usually profit or it's like seen as a business which of course it, it is in part it is partly a business but that's not the main goal here that's what the parents that started the school 25 years ago didn't want it to be so the school is self run that's what we call it and what happens is the board of directors being parents they have a completely different perspective not only because of course they've all been to school one day or like previously themselves so they know how the experience was but they have an updated perspective because their children are currently going to that same school right now too so they understand the problems that their children face and the this Uh, coupled with the fact that they're able to be unbiased because of course ad- adults but also um there's a whole group of other people you uh, meet meet with with at the board meetings um to talk about these issues and figuring out solutions with other parents is exactly what our school needs and is how it runs so for the aspect of how uh, how our school relates with the government and how that's managed of course we follow all government holidays and stuff like that we don't um we don't go against uh, government issued holidays and but, but we still do school from um like august to june while, uh, meanwhile the government schools here do school from january to december more or less so that's different that's amazing it's pretty great how parents stepped up and took action which in turn helped their own children since you know parents are more aware of the pressures of schooling and everything so Definitely. thank you so much madam for telling us about it yeah and as mentioned by maryam it is noted that the largest curriculum provider for international programs modeled on the english school system is cambridge international examinations or cie It is the most popular curriculum choice and is taught at over 2900 schools worldwide. However, a number of countries have national curricula, few of which are England, Australia, Singapore, Brazil and India. And although there is no national curriculum as such in the US, the states also follow common guidelines for a core curriculum. Yet Worldwide there are in excess of 9000 schools teaching a curriculum different from that of the host nation which is commonly referred to as international schools. Whoa. In fact, after the CIE, the most popular curriculum is the US oriented curriculum and the IB which works in 147 countries. So, in a lot of countries, there's more than one curriculum followed in the schools. like national curriculum ib or any other and different education boards within a country may follow different curriculum let's just get a better understanding of what that's like and how that affects the syllabus of a country hi my name is insia and i live in pakistan there are four curriculums in pakistan that i know of sind board federal board aa khan board and cies CIEs has an international educational structure which is same worldwide but Urdu is one of the subjects which is being taught here in Pakistan. Sind board and federal board have different books and examination criteria. The medium of instruction is in English. Studying Urdu is mandatory 
in both curriculums. But SIN board has made Sindhi, which is the state language, mandatory for students up to 10th class. Aal Khan board is the combination of books from SIN board, federal board and books from Oxford University Press. They have a structure called SLOs, which lists down the topics to be taught in school. The medium of instruction is in English. Urdu is mandatory, but Sindhi is not taught in this curriculum. Thank you, Anshya. That's indeed a very complex curricular and syllabus structure. So basically, even when the countries follow international curriculums like the CIE, they still modify the syllabus to some extent to include certain subjects like languages, for example, to suit the requirements of the students as well as the country. And the syllabus for each of the boards is also a combination of topics from different, different curricula. You know, actually, the Indian education system also follows a very similar pattern mm. in the sense that we also have many different boards and each board has its own syllabus, you know. But the syllabus for all the boards in India is designed by a central body called the NCERT. And yeah, very similarly, again, depending on the language of the state, that particular language is included in the core subjects that students are required to study. And that language may also be used as the medium of instruction in publicly funded schools in that particular state. Okay, so here, it's also very interesting to note that most countries only use their national language as a medium of instruction. And English is taught merely as a core subject. But in some non-English speaking countries, English itself is a language of instruction in schools. In fact, UNESCO considers that providing education in a child's mother tongue is indeed a critical issue. However, there are also countries where both English and the national language are used uh, in the school for communication and instruction. So basically, the English language dominates. True. But coming back to the syllabus, we've seen that the syllabus that a school follows is based on the curriculum that the school follows. But just how similar or different is the syllabus between two countries? Let's find out from someone who has pursued their education in two different countries. Hi, I am Mohammed and I live in the UK and I'm, I was going to start off with the similarities between the um, syllabus here in the UK and compared to that in India. The content of the subjects uh, is, very, is very similar here in the UK and in India. However, some topics may be taught at a later stage um, here than in India. So, for example, I think trigonometric identities might was taught a bit later than it would have been in India. Uh, also, boards are similar, uh, as in we have boards here as well, which centralize and standardize um, subjects that schools can then use. So uh, in India, we have boards like, I'm sure you know, CBSE and ICSE. Here we have boards like AQA and edXL, um, amongst other, many others. Um, but however, schools, can, schools here can choose which subject to take from which board. So... For example, 
at Excel or maths might be from the board at Excel. However, the sciences can be from AQA, um, which is unlike India because in India, one um, a school a school chooses one board and then all the subjects come from that one board. Um, so here, schools choose different boards depending on um, the students' requirements and the what topics their teachers are ex- experts in because um, some topics might only be um, provided by some boards. Uh, another difference uh, here is that in A-levels um, uh, or they're in college after standard 10, we get a choice of basically anything we want to do uh, or whatever the school offers. So we don't have to pick three set um, triplets like in um, India where you, you can choose between PCM, physics, chemistry, maths or three different subjects but they're confined to those three subjects. How Here we can pick anything we want um, like maths, English literature and arts I think. A lot of people have done um, so sky is the limit when the when it comes to combinations here in a level so I think these sum up the main differences that I find between um, syllabuses in in UK and in India thank you thanks a lot Mohammed so first things first he spoke about how certain topics are covered at a higher standard in the UK as compared to India and That's pretty interesting because it means that students in the same year, but let's say in different countries or curriculums, don't necessarily study the same level of subjects or courses. Right. And you know, schools pick a combination of subjects from different, different boards to suit the needs of the students. So that's such a flexible arrangement. And like he also mentioned, students are given the choice to choose which subjects they would like to study. And this too could be a combination of very different categories like physics and photography and so on, which is more common again in developed countries as compared to developing countries. Right. So in a set curriculum, uh, the subjects are divided into core or compulsory subjects and optional subjects. And around the world, you know, there is like a general agreement that primary and elementary levels must cover the national language, mathematics, science, history, and social studies. And besides these, English language is also taught in schools in almost all countries across the globe. Here we go with English again. You know, I think the reason why English occupies such an important place in the education sphere is simply because being able to speak, read, and write in English at least at a basic level, is such a necessary skill in today's world. Absolutely. But, you know, it's not just English. I mean, knowing more languages is always an advantage. And so, um, in both English-speaking as well as non-English-speaking countries, additional or foreign languages are offered as part of optional subjects. In fact, apart from the core subjects that we just talked about, there is an extensive list of optional subjects that are offered at schools in some countries as told to us by our respondents. Exactly. This huge list has a wide range of subjects from um, physical education, nutrition, 
psychology, ethics, religious studies, poetry, um, drama, music, photography, um, business, law, and even other like advanced level courses. Wow, that's a lot of options. Mm-hmm. But you know, actually, a lot of these are. Um, part of extracurricular and co-curricular activities at school so um the curricular activities are those that are a part of the curriculum and comprise academic and scholastic activities and then we have co-curricular activities which are those activities that are outside of but usually complementing the regular curriculum so um you know activities like sports both indoors and outdoors um and speeches debates elocutions creative writing spelling bee etc basically all the language related um activities that i always participated in at school um are very common and i think offered at almost all the schools whereas um other uh, various activities like maybe um different type of clubs like uh the gk club science club quiz club or model united nations social events school newspaper inter school competitions educational trips etc etc um they aren't as common but are being included by more and more schools nowadays so true i mean school trips were very rare but i always looked forward to school picnics to the aquarium and the science planetarium and so on I think my UAE friends know what I'm talking about. And then we also have extracurricular activities which are those um school based activities that are not really tied to the curriculum. It has been pointed out that private schools offer a wider range of extracurricular activities as compared to public schools because obviously public schools have a limited availability of funds. Right. Um, some extracurricular activities that are offered more commonly at private schools are art and craft based activities like clay modeling pottery woodwork and all of that then we have um, instruments ballet home skills like cooking baking tailoring etc leisure sports like horse riding swimming archery exchange programs and so on Well wow, that's actually a huge huge variety. So let's hear from one of the respondents what co-curricular and extracurricular activities were offered at their school and what were some of the criteria and limitations for selecting them. Hi my name is Sakina Mohammed Alilada and I went to Delhi private school Sharjah in United Arab Emirates so to answer the question we did have a lot of co-curricular activities such as music dance art and swimming but it only continued till the 8th grade and after that to make sure we concentrated more on studies they removed the subjects altogether but a few years ago they introduced this new class called electives in which you could choose which activity you wanted to do from the list given to you table tennis robotics chess etc were some of the activities that were on the list we also had other extracurricular activities such as evening games which taught students how to play some kinds of sports um learn a few new instruments or teach them arts 
Um, there weren't any restrictions that were known of. Some of the activities though required students to pay extra and a lot of my batchmates were not keen on that. Also, classes were often first come first serve. So a lot of students were stuck with something that they weren't interested for the whole year. Thank you. Thank you, Sakina, for mentioning a very important point because I think this is something we have noticed in schools under the Indian education system, where the main focus is only on the academics. So only the smart kids, you know, are allowed to participate in co-curriculars and extracurriculars. And other kids were not even given a chance or they were discouraged from diverting attention to those things and were more um, encouraged to focus instead on their academics. Yeah, I mean, I've seen this happen a lot here in India, like you said, and that's kind of biased, you know, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, you know, there is a kind of co-curricular activity which has been made compulsory for students in some countries. So let's hear about it from one such student. Hi, I'm Neeti and I'm from Canada. An interesting component about Canadian schooling, or rather schooling in Ontario since education is mandated at the provisional level, is that students enrolled in high school must complete at least 40 hours of community service in order to obtain a diploma and successfully graduate high school. And the reason um, so much importance is placed on the specific aspect of graduation is that it allows schools to encourage students to actively partake in their community and volunteering in community service also aid in raising social awareness about communal and societal issues, as well as shed light on the states and conditions of people in marginalized communities or less fortunate positions, such as elders in old age homes or the animal shelter population. And part of the reason 40 hours of community service are a necessary component of high school graduation is due to the sort of advantages they have on students, uh, one of which being first-hand experience, which allows students to connect with the members of their community, which fosters networking, which is beneficial in later years for post-secondary education if they need letters of reference um, or to be placed in employment settings. And the experience and skills that one gains while volunteering is directly transferable to career opportunities since community service characterizes leadership and responsibility. And finally, volunteering in one's community from an early age instills benevolence in students and also the importance uh, of the moral duty citizens carry to serve and give back to their society willingly. Wow, thank you so much, Niyati. That's actually such a great thing for all the reasons that she just mentioned. But what's more interesting is that community service is a necessity to obtain the degree. This shows that students' evaluation also greatly varies from school to school and country to country. The general most common idea is that schools across the globe lean towards pen and paper examinations, wherein a student's retaining skills are assessed. Yeah, but even apart from the exam format, even the type of questions differ. 
so we have open ended questions with essay type answers which are often used for higher grades and primary school students are usually assessed based on like regular class tests or so moreover schools um also use a mix of projects and assignments for evaluation and um, the post covid scenario has definitely switched things up since everything is online now um examinations too have changed altogether and keeping online platforms in mind exams are now in the form of questionnaires having multiple choice questions or quizzes talking about that you know this brings us to the next point that schools are swiftly moving towards more um dynamic ways of teaching students are encouraged to bring their own devices as well to facilitate learning in every way possible flipped learning which is a relatively new concept is where students are encouraged to take over and teach various new concepts in class and of course how can we forget our savior google with its larger than life database and e resources that seem to have no end besides this um many schools have techno savvy classrooms which use different gadgets like projectors smartphones and various other facilities yeah but let's not forget that this however is a major feature only in privately funded schools and is yet to be universalized in public schools around the world right why is that so let's hear it again from ali asghar now generally speaking the tuition fee per student in private schools is higher than in public schools increasing their capital and allowing them to invest more money into their teaching systems this can be in the form of resources such as smart screens digital methods of education laptops and other forms of the latest equipment allowing the student to embrace the topic in a more holistic approach now adding to this since the cost is higher and is privately managed in most scenarios these teachers are paid higher than their public school counterparts which does have an impact on the amount of work they're willing to put in and how motivated they are to teach the schools are also able to hire more teachers thus decreasing the teacher student ratio and increasing the individual attention per pupil public schools usually have to follow the government's guidelines on education and strictly adhere to the syllabus however private schools have a little flexibility here and there allowing them to incorporate essential co-curricular activities Also an increased budget corresponds to better facilities in general such as state of the art classrooms sports grounds libraries etc and all in all students from private schools usually have the upper hand in schooling Absolutely those are some other perks of private schools but he spoke about another very important feature which is the student teacher ratio Obviously private schools charge higher tuition and so they can afford more teachers thus directly reducing the student teacher ratio per class so let's hear it from sumaya a student studying in the uae about how this ratio affects students so in my school there are approximately 30 students per class but as a student with average academic success i feel that these many students per class does not help me much and i believe that more student means less focus by the teachers so when the teacher has so many students to teach 
she is unable to effectively concentrate on each student's performance and as a result the teacher pays attention to a few selected students who are either academically exceptional or below average and hence the rest of the class is left with less attention from the teacher so i would love to study in a class with fewer students and hence better focus on each student completely agree with you sumaya thank you so much the number of students in a classroom certainly affects how much attention a teacher can give to each student individually but might i just add that 30 students per class is nothing compared to 45 to 60 students per class per teacher in some private and most public schools in india wow and yeah and ashi rightly said this is disadvantages to the student but i think the country's overall population also plays a role in determining this student teacher ratio you know that's also there um so now having heard all the different aspects in which schools and countries differ in education let's hear an all round first hand comparison of two of our respondents who have moved across nations and have had schooling experiences in two countries hello everyone i'm ananya and i'm currently living in india however i have done half of my schooling in singapore india and singapore do have their fair share of similarities and differences in their academic approach uh, like in india we have a board exam in class 10th which further decides which college we get into similarly in singapore we have an exam but in the 6th grade it is called psle which stands for primary school leaving examination students need to clear this exam in order to qualify to secondary level similarly there are two more examinations at secondary and post secondary level as well they are gce cambridge's general certificate of education the level of grade you get in those will get you into higher education institutions as far as the syllabus was concerned the syllabus there is extremely tough the syllabus was about a year or two ahead to that of india's i believe and i did have a hard time catching up the schools there however i guess wanted to instill a sense of responsibility or independence among the students so we had um cleaning duties every day since second standard students had to alternatively stay back in groups to sweep and mop the classroom also staying back in school was quite common there i'm not sure if it is still there i think it's still there but at that time it was pretty common and it was sort of a cultural shock actually to me when i saw how unconventional it was for students to stay back after school as in india a national level public examination is common in many countries which all students of that particular grade are required to take besides that ananya mentioned how the syllabus in singapore was a little advanced and mohammed also spoke about something very similar but my favorite part was the fact that students had to clean their own classrooms same i mean that not only instills responsibility and independence as ananya mentioned but um it also teaches students dignity of labor which unfortunately from what i've seen in india seems to be really lacking um anyway moving on let's hear about the experience of our other respondent hi i'm avanti i live in australia but i've studied in india for a few years When it comes to differences between school or education in the two countries, I think some main points that come to my mind are: first, we didn't really have exams or tests until year six, 
That is, all the evaluation was based on worksheets, projects, assignments, which included making models, PPTs or group work, which is very different from the assignments that we had in India, which were mostly in the written format or text-based. We also didn't have textbooks in the junior classes. Instead, teachers used visual teaching aids and technology was heavily used in classrooms in Australia, which were equipped with smartboards and projectors. Unlike most classrooms in India, schools which typically have 40 to 70 children, here we only have about 20. We also didn't get much homework or anything especially during vacations and holidays, but in India we did. Here in Australia, we went on frequent educational trips and we would be taught something and given a background about it before going and after returning, we would have to do a project on what we had learned from the experience. Educational trips weren't that frequent in India, but we did have fun school trips to different places. All in all, the both countries have a very different approach to overall education. I think from the answers we have received, developed countries place greater emphasis on individuality, creativity and, you know, knowledge instead of rote learning, which is generally seen in developing countries. Hence, evaluation is also based on activities and projects instead of the usual written examinations and um, the more developed a country is the more resources they can invest into education resulting in the heavy use of technology in classes and so many out of classroom learning experiences and did you say you didn't get homework in australia (laughs) even during vacations I mean, that sounds like every student's dream. I know, right? But thank you so much, Ananya and Avanti, for sharing your experiences with us and our audience. Having studied in two different countries myself, I could certainly relate to some of the points that you both mentioned. And I'm sure it has given our audience a better idea of the inter-country educational differences too. I hope so too. And we've almost come towards the end of today's episode, but we have one final response to share with you all. Now, we couldn't help but ask the respondent from USA how accurate the portrayal of American high schools is in movies and series as opposed to reality. Now, I hope you all are ready for the expectations versus reality showdown. So let's hear it from our final respondent. Hey, my name is Jesslyn George, and I did my high school, a part of it at least, in Orlando, Florida. TV shows nowadays portray high schools as something that's a lot of fun and it's easygoing, there's nothing to worry about. Um, But that is not the case, actually. They make it seem as if no one has homework, it's just those surprising... um, pop quizzes and the teachers are super chill or they're extremely studious in a really comical way but um we do have homework we do have strict teachers um we do have tests so our tests most of them are like mcqs right except for those essays which maybe once twice a year that's all other than that almost every one of them is in mcq tests and they're fairly simple compared to what i've i'm used to they were actually pretty easy um as for homeworks it kind of depends you know in high school 
you don't exactly have textbooks you have all of them as web portals so you do have like a couple of homeworks here and there um but that that's it's not super time consuming it's actually pretty simple um then we have our teachers our teachers there are pretty chill ones you know the ones who don't care what you do in class how you behave like as long as you get your marks and you submit your homeworks on time on the same spectrum you have the other kind of teachers who are extremely strict or they don't exactly um make you feel like you know you're doing great or whatever they will call your parents up or notify the admin if you're not doing your work and um then pop quizzes there are pop quizzes but it's not always pen and paper i mean sometimes it is but like most of the times it's just oral cuz correcting 40 papers per class teachers really don't want to do that that is about about the educational or the academic aspect of high school i mean then you think about it there are there aren't any you know jocks and cheerleaders it's 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 more like there is a popular group and underneath that there are other groups who find something in common like k-pop or a new band or a tv show or something um another thing that is wrongly shown in high school um shows is bullying there's never a one-on-one confrontation you know push up against the locker or anything like that it is always verbal war i like to call it between two groups but um it never escalates cuz there's always a teacher or a hall monitor and we have like the sheriff's cars and stuff that'll be outside school So yeah, I mean, although they are so much fun to watch on TV, high school is not as nearly fun as Victoria's and iCarly or like Nuts Declassified. There's the Lewis is coming to my mind right now. Make it seem to be. Well, I guess in the end, schools in America are just like those anywhere else in the world. Yeah, so high school musical was a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, kind of a bummer actually that the portrayal of American schools in the media isn't very close to reality. But I guess I'm also glad to know that we aren't missing out on much as you know most high school movies and series make us think. But um thanks a lot for your input, Jesslyn. Well, 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 um hearing from everyone here today made us realize that the world of education is actually full of differences and diversity most of which are a result of the money and resources invested in it so well done capitalism <laughs> but but there are however a few positive takeaways from education systems of different countries which i think if blended together would provide an ideal optimistic and holistic learning experience for students which would have a definite and lasting impact on their future. Mm yeah, I think so too. But I personally had so much fun making this episode. I agree me too. It was something different and fun. 
it was great to have so many other people contribute and be a part of this episode exactly so a huge thank you to all the respondents who participated in the survey and gave us such meaningful insights into the educational systems of different countries make sure to visit the blog on our website to read all the survey questions and responses our special special thanks to the respondents who so kindly agreed to submit verbal responses as well um i'm pretty sure the audience enjoyed hearing you all and getting a break from just hearing sakina and me <laughs> <laughs> yeah well we really hope you liked this different format that we tried out um as always thank you so much for tuning in and signing off we are your hosts sakina and fatima